Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have your Bible, open it up to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and while you're doing that, um, I want to introduce you to a friend. We're, we're in this series called Christmas Around the World. We're talking about how the advent of Jesus, because it, Jesus is the Savior of the world, His love goes out to all the world, and because of that, God's love changes different cultures and different types of people. So we're talking about Christmas traditions and uh, the different ways that God's love has changed us all around the world. And uh, Vivian, will you briefly introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Vivian Gibson. Uh Uh, I've been coming here um, probably about four years, but I've actually been affiliated with the church for about I don't know, 14 years or so. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay, so the question for the morning is, uh, tell us about a Christmas tradition in your life, your family. What, what's a, a Christmas tradition that comes to mind? Okay, well, I'm Hispanic, and in, in our family and culture, um, really getting together with family um, and having a meal, but a big uh, Christmas um, deal for us is having tamales during Christmas, mm. and um, that's really growing up. That was going going to grandma's on uh, Christmas Eve and having um, actually the whole process of making a tamale was the whole day, and then at night we would have our tamales. Um, but not that I know how to make tamales today. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but thankfully, my husband loves to cook. And um, actually, he's a Caucasian. I'm Hispanic. So we have kind of like Coxican. <laughs> Coxican <laughs> yeah. tamales. Okay. Yeah, great. He, you know, Mexican and Caucasian traditions, actually, in our family. So he actually is the better cook, and he is actually a really good Mexican cook, okay. and he makes the tamales for our family. That's funny. Yeah, and he loves to cook. And so, but I think the focus of getting together, um, I have a big family. My husband has a very small family, so gathering everybody together has been uh, really important to us. And now, you know, we had a lot of different traditions growing up. Um, you know, we actually, I grew up here, and, you know, I'm, I'm um, Mexican-American, and, but very Americanized. And so there wasn't a whole lot of cultural background from, you know, our Me- Mexican heritage here. So we did a lot of typical things like um, Christmas trees and presents and things like that. Great. And so the theme for today is we're talking about love. Yes. Uh, can, when you think back on your Christmas experience, uh, how has love come out in that experience? Okay. Well, we in our family, we really did celebrate the birth in, uh, of Jesus. And so um, that was very important to us and teaching my kids that. We didn't do the Santa thing, but even though that's kind of fun. But no Santa. Was, See, this yeah, is like I'm a controversial sorry. topic as a Christian parent. <laughs> do you talk about Santa? That's so good. Well, probably because when I was younger, um, my parents did the Santa thing. Uh-huh. And when I found presents prior to Christmas in their closet and saw them under the Christmas tree on Christmas morning, that was like, what is right and true in the world. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh my God, you've been, been lying to me all these years. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, I, I, I guess for us it was just the focus of that. But not that I'm against dance or anything like <laughs> that, truly, guys. Um, um, the thing with uh, my husband, he, was a, um, he is a retired fire captain now, but he worked a lot on the holidays. So on the day of Christmas, um, we would 
really minister a lot to my mom, who was a widow, and her senior friends. And that was the time to reach out at that time. And then we would do alternative days of celebrating with our family when my husband finally came home. That's so okay. it was really a, a time of outreach to um, other people who didn't have a place to um, you know, have Christmas with or celebrate. A lot of, a lot of um, elderly people. We That's really so great. Got to minister to. Yeah. Well, great. Guys, round of applause for Vivian. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing. I really appreciate you. All right, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're talking about Christmas in our series, Christmas Around the World. And you'll notice in our passage today that there is a striking absence of wise men, mangers, um, starry hosts, angels. And that's because in John's uh, conveyance of the gospel, the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he chooses to answer the question, why is Christmas important? More than the narrative of Christmas and the sights and the sounds and the smells of the Christmas story and Jesus' birth, John chooses to go a different tact with his gospel, with his letters, and he's saying, why does this matter to me? What does it matter to different cultures, to different experiences? And really, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, the the fact is, though, in our series about Christmas around the world is that the gospel goes out to all kinds of different people, and it manifests, God's love manifests in different cultures and different peoples differently. And so maybe the lingering question behind our series is, how is God's love changing your cultural experience, your personal experience, and your particular family and your context? Um, when I think of, about Christmas around the world, I think of the, the Christmas truce of 1914, uh, there's an interesting kind of like happening in, during World War I on the Western Front where a series of, um, of battles, battlefields that were entrenched on both sides and had been entrenched on both sides for some time, uh, magically, in a miraculous thing, took a break from World War I, from the bombing, from the shooting, uh, for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They call it the Christmas Truce of 1914. It started on the German side. They decorated their trenches with Christmas decorations from their culture. And then they started singing Christmas carols in German. And then the British fighters entrenched not far away. You could still hear each other talk. You could still hear each other shout things. I mean, that's how close these trenches were that these men were hiding in and, and fighting from. And the British soldiers heard the carols and then started singing Christmas carols of their own. And then all of a sudden, the British soldiers started yelling Christmas greetings to the Germans. I was thinking, I was assuming it was like, Merry Christmas, filthy animals, ba 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 but it wasn't that. It was like legitimate, like, like God came for you, and God loves you. And then all of a sudden, uh, at some point, the first person came out of the trench and extended peace to the other side. And it started the Christmas truce of 1914, where along the entire Western Front at select places, men got out of their trenches for Christmas Eve and Christmas and left their weapons in their trench and played soccer together, picked up their wounded and their dead, and gave proper burials for them, uh, traded tobacco and socks and other needed uh, uh, um, supplies across to the, to the enemy. The major question around uh, this story is what would compel guy number one to get out of his trench at the risk of his life to extend that kind of forgiveness, that kind of peace, that kind of love? Well, I think 
we know that there was something special about Christmas time where I imagine it wasn't just because of Christmas trees are so great, which they are, they're just beautiful. I imagine it's not just the, the nature of the songs, but some truth behind Christmas that would compel that kind of truth, that kind of forgiveness, and, and that sort of love. Well, like I said, in our passage, we're not talking so much about the sights and smells of Christmas. We're really answering that question, which is like, what compels us to love? What compels us to say that God is love? The answer is that there is something that was revealed to us, that was given to us, that was demonstrated for us at Christmas time in the coming of Jesus. And so we're going to see these three points in our passage. We're going to see that God's love, a topic of today, is given through his son. Really, there we're talking about the nature of God's love. The nature is that it's given. Secondly, we'll talk about that it's demonstrated in Christ's sacrifice. There we're talking about the proof of God's love. How do we know God really loves us? The proof of it is that it's demonstrated through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And thirdly, that it's expressed today through God's people. My hope is that we don't, as a church, we don't get caught up in the sights and sounds and smells of Christmas, although they're powerful, but that behind every Christmas tree, which actually has a Druid background, some sort of weird pagan Druid thing, and behind every song that might or might not be about Jesus, there is a love and a peace and a forgiveness and a joy behind it in the hearts of this congregation, in our hearts this Christmas time. Let's read our passage. First John chapter 4, we're starting in verse 7. And going to 14, John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be a savior of the world. Simply put, the power of Christmas in 1 John 4, chapter um, chapter 4, verses 7 through 14 The power of God's love has been revealed to us in the world. It's given to us as a gift. And that's actually a really important thing, and that's our first point. That God's love is given through his son. Because God's gift of Jesus was given to us, and that God is love, the gift is loving, what that means is that love itself was revealed to us in a powerful way at Christmas, but it was not manifest in our own hearts It was not created just because we decided to try and be loving people. Instead, the message of of the gospel, the message of Christianity, is that we were incomplete. We were in need of love from God. We were in need of that relationship. And in his grace and desire to have a relationship with us, he sent that love to us. So, like, that's a unique worldview amongst the world's religions. Because in the end, as you study every other world religion or even ideologies about how to live your life without God, they all kind of have this one thing in common besides Christianity. That there's a ladder and uh, 
Enlightenment is up there at the top of the ladder. God is up there at the top of the ladder. God's favor and his acceptance of you is at the top of the ladder. And all of these different prophets of all the world religions tell you, do this, and if you do them enough, and if you can muster up the righteousness to kind of be good, be loving, then you can earn God's salvation. You can climb the ladder. Or if you reach these practices to help you be enlightened, then you can go up the ladder. And in love... Christianity is unique in that the message is, the account is, that while we were unable to climb that ladder and muster up enough love and righteousness to just be good, create justice, create a world where there's loving, we were unable to do that. But in God's love, he came down the ladder for us. So first, the fact that God's love is given in Jesus means that we don't have to climb the ladder to be perfect to manifest love in ourselves to earn God's favor. That's good news. Secondly, uh, God's love is powerful because it's not earned. I mean, one of the primary ways to drive people away in your life is to be desperate for their affection, desperate for their acceptance, desperate for their approval. There's something just innate in our minds that just recognizes when someone's trying to use us to get us to like them, we're repelled by it. It's like my favorite quote from Seinfeld where, where Jerry Seinfeld says, Oh, liking people who like you, ugh. Like, what is it? Like, we sense that people are going, I need you to, be, to approve me. I, I need to say something, to do something, to earn your favor. And it, and it repels us because we innately know that we're feeling used, but then in the same way we do that with God. Because we think, if I do these good things, he'll answer my prayers. He'll give me business success. He'll make my kids turn out right. He'll make me beautiful. He'll keep me healthy. But in the fact, we're just still using God. We're still trying to climb the ladder when Jesus has already come down on our behalf. It's also really popular for us to think that we are able to manifest love in in and of ourselves. That's kind of where the American somewhat privileged positive thinking movement has come from, where it says you have it inside of yourself to create a just and perfect utopian world. Your life can handle itself as long as you realize that you're perfect and and your problem in life is that you just don't understand how perfect you really are. I mean, that's an overstatement, but that in the end is the summation of about 600 books at the bookstore. If you don't know what a bookstore is, it's okay. You're probably just under 30. That uh, like there used to be a section of positive thinking, self-help, and that's the summation of all the books. You have it in yourself. You can do it. But can I just tell you that time has, has, we've lived with that worldview long enough to see that that kind of thinking about your life, that you are loving. You just have to discover how lovable and loving you are and just, just be loving and just do it and then wake up and look in the mirror and say, you are lovable. And then just walk out and think positively and the universe will answer your uh, needs in life. We've lived with that long enough to know that what that creates is a roller coaster ride of self-righteousness and self-hating. Self-righteousness because if you say, I mustered up enough character to love other people, then you'll look at all of the rest of the population and say, why can't you guys be as loving as I am? Self-righteousness. Or self-hatred because you know that in and of yourself, you're not able to love, you messed up with love, you didn't make the right choices, and so you hate yourself. But then the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along and says, love exists and it's in your heart because it's been put there. You are lovable. You're acceptable, but it's because there's a God who loves you. And now you have a mixture 
of self-worth. I'm lovable. I'm forgivable. I'm a person who matters in this world. But it's not because I earned it and there's no room for self-righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. There's something about love that's powerful when it goes out to you, when it's initiated, undeserved, and given to you. The writer of 1 John is John. And there's another historical account of his life by a historian called Eusebius. And in his fourth, fourth book of church history, Eusebius records this account in John's life. He says, listen to a tale. This is how he writes. Listen to a tale, which is not a mere tale, but a narrative concerning John the Apostle, which has been handed down and treasured up in memory. It tells the story of John as an old man towards the end of his life where he discipled a young man. He mentored a young man, helped him know Jesus. The young man became a Christian. And then John went off somewhere important in his travels, and he tasked the other men from the church to look over this young man and continue to mentor him. They didn't do that. And the young man fell into a bad crowd. He became a criminal, a a, a thief and a violent man. He eventually worked his way into a gang of robbers that lived up in the hill country in an encampment, uh, and he eventually, this young man, became the leader of this bandit group. When John came back to his church gathering, he asked about the young man. They said, we don't know where he went, but we know he's in trouble. John tears his clothes immediately and asks, get me a horse, which I just like, I want to say that at some point in my life, (laughs) just get me a horse. He actually says, get me a horse and tell me where he is. And then so John, as an old man towards the end of his life, rides up into the mountains where no one else would go because this bandit group was isolated up in the mountains because they were killing people if they were trying to, to arrest them or to bring them to justice. So John rides into the group. And at the outside of the camp, John is taken captive by the guards of the camp. And his only request when he gets arrested by this group is take me to your leader, knowing the young man is the leader. And so John is brought to the young man. And as they're walking this old man up to the bandit leader, immediately the the young man throws his weapons to his side and runs away from John. And so it records here that John starts chasing after the young man, but he's old at this point. He's yelling out of breath, you know, like trying to chase him. He says, I'll die if that's what it takes for me to come to you. And so the young man continues to run away. And at some point he pauses and he just falls to the ground. And then eventually it even states like eventually John caught up to him and put his arms around him and prayed with him. And he said these words to paraphrase, that there is still hope for your life. And he says, believe. There's something loving that compels John to go up into the mountains. There's something powerful that causes somebody to get out of their trench and go between the trenches into an area called no man's land. There's something compelling that causes John to ride out on a horse at the risk of his own life. And there was something that compelled Jesus to leave heaven and come for us. And it's love. It's God's love in each account. Well, you might say, Christmas is a nice story, but what does that really matter for me today? Or John's story is a nice story, or the Christmas truth of 1914 is a a great story. Are we just supposed to kind of derive inspiration from these loving stories? Uh, But that's not how John works. John is saying that Christmas is powerful because it's true. It's not 
true because it's powerful. It's not as though we say, wow, wouldn't that be neat if that were true? God loves us. Let's celebrate with some Christmas gifts. John is saying, Christmas is real and powerful. God's love is powerful and true in your life because Jesus actually lived. And I would make the case that if you're here, maybe you feel a little bit skeptical of the whole Jesus thing and you're saying, I don't know if Jesus is real and I don't know if God's real or if God exists even if we could know him at all. Um, But I like the idea of this grace and forgiveness. But hold on because John's point is that you don't get to unlock that love in your life really unless you believe in the literal life, literal death, and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John mentions it in this passage. He mentions it a bunch in chapter 1 of 1 John. You'll notice in our passage in verse 14, it says, um, John writes, that we've seen and we testify. Testify like in a court. And a New Testament scholar like Bob Yarbrough, he's a a well-known New Testament scholar, he's making the point in his book that... uh, I'm sorry, rather, Bob Yarborough points out that John is making the point to us that uh, he's using the terminology of being in court, jurisprudence and, uh, and that sort of thing. And if you flip back to John chapter 1, you'll notice in the day, in the first century, if you were making a testimony in court, you would point out, was, was, was the event seen by other people? Did you talk to the person? Do you have the actual information? Some of that is true today. And in 1 John 1, uh, John writes, That which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, which we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we looked at, our hands have touched, and we proclaim. That's all in verse 1 of 1 John 1. And then verse 2, He appeared, we've seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim this eternal life. He's appeared to us. We proclaim, we've seen and heard, and we write this now as a testimony. That's all in just four verses of 1 John chapter 1. So if you really want to make Christmas something more than just a bunch of sentiment, you have to believe in the literal life, death, and resurrection. And and the reason I bring it up is to say, I think every time we talk about Jesus, we talk about the story of Christmas, there's an objection in the room with a group this size that says, why do we have to talk about doctrine and dogma why can't we just love? Like, why do we have to agree that Jesus really lived and that he died on the cross and that he resurrected three days later and that he now exists in heaven for all of eternity? He'll come back one day. Why is it important that we talk about doctrine? Is that just a thing the pastor always wants to talk about? Well, yes. But the, the reason why the love matters is because it's true. And I just actually want to just stop and say, if you've ever said out loud, why do we have to talk about theology? Let's just love I want to point out that that itself is a doctrine. Like you just said, we don't want doctrine, but it is a doctrine. And that is a doctrine that denies our own sinfulness. And it's a a doctrine that says, I am able to love. I can muster up righteousness in my own life. So it's self-defeating because you're saying, I don't like that doctrine. I have my new doctrine, which is let's ignore doctrine, except for my doctrine, and let's love one another. But again, like I said, if your theology says people should be like me because I'm thinking correctly, I'm the open-minded one, I'm the one who uh, understands more than what Jesus is saying or more than what John is saying in that, uh, all we need to do is just love one another and the world will be made right. John would just say, hold on a minute. The love has to have a reason. And it has to have a risk. And it has to have proof that the love really existed. Verifiable in history, Jesus came. And the proof that he really loves you 
is on his death on the cross, which is our second point. God's love is demonstrated by a sacrifice. Sometimes uh, when you're in a relationship, marriage, uh, I don't know if friends do this, but you end up just kind of like looking at each other, maybe dating relationships where you go, how much do you love me? How many times have you been in a relationship or you had a discussion where like that subject just kind of comes up? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Or then sometimes the fights that you have with your spouse are like uh, something like this. Um, you, you didn't do X and I'm mad at you. And then... Typically, the guy will say, um, let me know next time you want me to do X, and I'll do it for you. Problem solved. And then sometimes the response is, I don't want you just to do X. I want you to want to do X. And I want you to do it unsolicited. I want you to do it uh, by your own initiation to prove that you love me. Well, if you've ever asked that question of God, if you've ever felt like you messed up too much or that you're, you don't know your Bible enough, you don't, you're not gifted enough, you're not, you haven't been a Christian long enough, or if you've ever wondered if God loves you and has favor for you, John is mentioning it's not just that Jesus was sent and that he came and that he was given as a gift, but that he demonstrated that love for you. It says in verse 9, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son in the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We have to back up a little bit and talk about atoning sacrifice. So a sacrifice is something that takes on sin. That's what a a sacrifice is in the Old Testament. Even with other religions, it's like we are sinful. We can place that guilt onto something that does not deserve that guilt. And then by it taking that punishment, uh, it takes on, uh, it's free from us. That's what an atoning sacrifice is. Another way to say it is that it's a substitution. When Jesus died on the cross, he was our substitute, a substitutionary atonement. That we are sinful, we deserve wrath. Jesus was perfect and deserves an eternal relationship with God. And in his love, we switched roles. He took on the punishment that we deserve and he gave us the relationship with God the Father that only he deserved. Another way to say it, to, uh, to quote one well-known writer, he, uh, I, I read this quote a lot. Pardon me if I've read it before. But here's, the, here's what I tell myself a lot, oftentimes, that you're more wicked and sinful than you're willing to admit to yourself. But you're more loved and cherished than you could ever dare dream. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're more wicked and sinful than you can really ever imagine. Your sin runs so deep, it hides the other sins in your life. Like you think you're prideful, but you don't, you don't even think about the fact that you're greedy because the pride sin so overwhelms you. You go, man, why am I so prideful? You got 10 other sins. And the one sin just hides from the rest of them. We're more wicked and sinful than we really can wrap our heads around oftentimes. But God's love for you, his favor for you, and the extent of his forgiveness for you reaches so deep that you're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you can ever dare dream. I think of it as like, um, well... Uh, I'll back up and say there's a publisher in Europe that tries to explain a Christian worldview to skeptics, in uh, European skeptics, and uh, the group is called Surge, and they wrote a book, and here's the graphic they gave. Uh, it's called The Gospel Grid. When you are not a Christian, God's holy um, standard for your life is like pretty minimal because you don't know God. And your understanding of your own sinfulness is pretty minimal because you don't know what sin is. And so they're kind of met met in the middle. But when you become a Christian, they just kind of shoot out 
to different angles. God's holy. He has a standard for your life because he's perfect. And then you realize I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. And the point that they make is that the bigger the gap is between these two things, the more room you have for Jesus in your life. So like sometimes in our lives we say, I know the Bible says uh, do such and such a thing. I know the biblical standard for sexuality, for money, for uh, fellowship, for treating other people is such and such a thing. And then oftentimes we'll say, but God doesn't really expect me to do that. And so we pull down that line. But if our sin is here and we pull down this line, then it makes that gap smaller. We have less room for Jesus because we end up saying things like, God doesn't really expect that of me. I'm not really that much of a sinner. And so all of a sudden we have this minimal need for Jesus in our lives. And the idea as you grow in your faith is you have this expanded, amazing view of who God is and this deep understanding that we're wicked and sinful Not that it ruins your self-worth because that makes you have more room for God's grace in your life. Let me just apply it this way. Here's the sign in your life, a few signs, that you have a small Jesus in your life because you've minimized God's standard or you've brought up your own sinfulness trying to act like you're not that sinful. Here's a, a few signs that you might have a minimized view of your own sin or minimized view of God's holiness. There's no sweetness in your prayer life. There's not a gratitude and a love for God when you read the word, when you sing worship songs. There's, there's going to be very little sweetness and joy to your faith. A lot of our obedience when we minimize Jesus' role in our lives is just out of duty or it's just out of a desire to save face, to look like we're put, uh, keeping it together as Christians. There's not a sense that Jesus, without you, I'd be nothing. There's not a sense of, God, you're holy and perfect. Your plan for my life is 10 times better than whatever plans I can make. And so I trust you. There's not a sense of that. But there is a sense if we have a maximized view of Jesus in our life, in our prayers, in our Bible reading, in our worship, where you say, God, sometimes I can't even put it to words how grateful I am that you chose me. It reminds me of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It's such a powerful verse. Every time I read it, I just think, like, what a cool moment. At the beginning of chapter 3, John has been talking about love and light and life. He's been talking about Jesus for two chapters. And then now at the beginning of chapter 3, John writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, exclamation point. It's not in the Greek because I don't think Greeks had the exclamation point, but like even in the English, it's like this is an exclamation. See what great love the Father has lavished on me that we should be called children of God. What that means, that we should be adopted, that we should be chosen and selected. I love you. And then John writes, and that is exactly what I am, a child of God, accepted his. Does your Christian life have sweetness to it? If not, if it seems like duty, if it seems dead, then maybe this, that's a symptom of the fact that you have a minimized view of Jesus in your life. Instead, now think through 1 John 9 and 10. God showed you love in this. He sent his son into the world that you could have life and that you were sinful enough that you needed an atoning sacrifice for your sin. Thirdly, God's love is expressed through his people. 
John's conclusion about this passage is not just a bunch of information about God's love for you, but that there's something made complete about God's love when we put it into action for one another and for the world. In verse 11, it says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. Let me pause and say, John knew that we saw God when we saw Jesus, but he's referring to God the Father as a shorthand here. No one has seen God the Father, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I also want to stop for a second and let you know that um, as you read John, you'll start to notice he uses conditional sentences. Conditional sentences are like if-then statements. And here, and a lot with John, when he says if-then, it's assuming oftentimes a yes. So you could read it like this. If we love one another, and we know we will because God has loved us, then we'll know that God lives in us and it's made complete in us. I just think it's totally true, and I, I praise God that John wrote it down into the Bible, that there's something about God's love that if it just stops on you, it is not made complete. I mean, think through Jesus. He loved his 12 disciples. He discipled them. Those 12 went out and there were multitudes of people who turned to Jesus. Those people got driven out into the surrounding areas because of persecution and the gospel, yada, yada, yada. Then you heard the gospel and you became a Christian and then God loved you. And if it stops there from Jesus, disciples, all of church history to Mike Glime in 2019 and it doesn't go any further on this line, that love will not be made complete. But as that love manifests itself out in our decisions, in our gifts, in our words of encouragement and through our lives, there's something, not only does the love keep going, the gospel keeps going, but that, that love is made more real in our lives because we put it into practice. It's like if you sacrifice for other people and you notice yourself sacrificing for others because you love them, you all of a sudden look back at Christ's sacrifice for you, and you say, oh, I understand in a new way that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. I'll give you an example. Tony Campolo is a, a sociologist. He's a professor at Eastern University in Pennsylvania, and he's been telling this story for some time because I think, I'm sure he loved people all the time, but then he had this one just powerful instance that he wrote down into one of his books where he was in Hawaii, and because of the jet lag that's created to go, by going from Pennsylvania to Honolulu, he finished his lecturing and his teaching because he is kind of a popular Christian speaker as well. And then he tried to go to sleep, couldn't go to sleep, and then got up at 3 a.m. to go to a 24-hour diner. And then Tony Campolo writes that uh, it was kind of just one of those like seedy, gross, greasy spoon 24-hour diners. He says it smells like cigarettes in there. The, the, um, the, the cook comes out and his name is Harry. And he just kind of cleans his hands by doing this, you know, just like, I don't know if that's the health code, but, you know, just like kind of a gross, greasy spoon restaurant. And he asks for a donut and a cup of coffee. And then at 3.15, like, as he finds out, happens every day, some women that were prostitutes came in to get, their, uh, to get a meal at the end of their shift, you might say. And so Tony Campolo kind of notices what's going on. He notices that Harry knows these women. One of the women's name is Agnes. And uh, Tony uh, overhears Agnes saying, tomorrow is my birthday. And then the other woman that was with Agnes said, oh yeah, is anything interesting going on? And Agnes just kind of laughs and says, no, nothing's going on for my birthday. I don't think I've ever celebrated a birthday in my entire life. And the tone of the way she said it, uh, you know, I think reached Tony's mind in a way that he understood that there was some sadness and some hurt behind that. 
The women keep chatting. They get their food. They leave. And then after they leave, Tony asks the cook, do you know these women? He says, yes, they come in every single day at 3.15. They leave uh, soon after that. And then Tony says, what if we throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow? And Harry says, that's a fantastic idea. I'll make the cake. Tony says, awesome. I'll bring the balloons. I'll go get all the decorations. Harry, will you tell all of, of the other women who are out working in the night that know Agnes, and will you bring them all here and we'll throw a great birthday party? Long story short, Tony does his uh, lectures for the next day before he comes, before he, instead of going to bed, he goes and buys all the decorations. He decorates the place. They pack the place out with all the other ladies of the night that know Agnes, and all of a sudden she comes in and she falls to the ground. They scream happy birthday. Her legs just buckle underneath her. She starts crying. They prop her up. They sit her in the booth in front of a cake. She's crying, he writes, so much that she can't bear to blow out the candles. She wants to preserve the cake, so they cut her a piece, and she runs it home. She leaves the party for a bit to put it into her freezer so she can save it. She comes back, and then they celebrate with her. Um, while Agnes was gone, putting her, <laughs> gone with the cake, you know, the party, you, you can't do much else while she took the cake with her. Um, the, uh, they, they stop and they pray for Agnes. And then after the prayer, they prayed for her health, they prayed for her life, that Tony prayed that, he w- that she would know Jesus. After the prayer, Harry asks, oh, I didn't know like you were religious. Uh, what kind of church do you go to? And Tony's response, perfect. I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. Like the Christmas truce of 1914, like John going out to a young man at the risk of his own life, like Tony Campolo throwing a birthday party for Christmas, the question is this, what at Christmas time, what in the life of a Christian compels someone to go out and to love in that way? It's an initiated, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us. That kind of love is made complete. And I know, like when I first read that story and I started doing some research on like Snopes to make sure it was actually true, because sometimes you got to verify these things, that you start to realize like there's something powerful about love that is amazing in the life of Christians. It grips our heart. And I just want to close with this. Around Christmas time, I think a lot of people have a real dilemma in their life. Because they live, oftentimes people live their lives every single day of the year with the assumption, I don't know if I can know God or not. I don't know if God loves me. And if God exists, I don't know if we can know him at all. Um, Or they live their life assuming that love, yet they live their life assuming that love matters. What I'm trying to point out that scholars, like I was reading Francis Crick, a well-known evolutionary biologist this week, he made the point in a number of his writings, kind of most famously in the 90s, that all of the love that you feel and all of the identity thing you think you have, and all of the meaning you think you have in life is just a product of evolutionary biology. Some creature before you lived uh, believed in love or had something in their life that caused you to believe in love. It made them survive, and that's why today we think we have an identity, we think people matter, we think genocide is wrong, and we think that love exists. And a lot of people believe that. They say, I only believe what's true and can be proven by science, and yet no one lives their life that way on a daily basis. Some of the most ardent kind of like skeptics that I know or that I talk to because of church, they don't ever live their life on the assumption that love is just a manifestation of brain chemistry that helps some creature evolve and that's why we believe in love. They believe that love matters. Here's what I want to point out. 
A lot of times at Christmas, we have this dilemma, if you don't know Jesus, between, between the real and the ideal. Between what you perceive as the real and the ideal, your head and your heart can battle with one another around Christmas time. The sights, the sounds, the smells, and the Christmas story of God's love for the world makes you want it to be true, but maybe you have these lingering questions. Christmas, if that's you, can make you whole. John is saying, engage your mind in this reality. Jesus came. Love exists. It's from God. Notice our passage does not say that Jesus was born. It doesn't say Jesus was created. It said he was sent three times, it says that. And then it says Jesus was given to us in love. And he, he came for us. John is making the point that God existed from eternity past. He was love. He is love. And he came for us. Like he wrote himself into the story of the world. Harriet Vane is a, um, a literary character from the author Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a well-known aristocratic and a British woman novelist who wrote about a dozen mystery novels between World War I and World War II. Um, she spoke of herself, note, as a plain girl that didn't receive much attention from boys. She was a mystery writer and one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford University. Her no- novels were usually murder mysteries that involved this kind of flawed character, Peter Whimsey, lovable, oaf, very flawed person, and through the books, he would kind of just stumble his way into solving a crime, and then the good would win out. But uh, through a few novels, Dorothy Sayers, herself being single, herself not receiving a lot of attention from boys in her life as a mystery novelist uh, graduate from Oxford University, noticed that something needed to save her favorite famous character from all these um, mystery novels, Peter Whimsey. All of a sudden, a character named Harriet Vane appeared in the stories. Interestingly enough, Harriet Vane was depicted as a mystery novel writer herself, was rather plain in appearance, but had a great personality, and was educated at Oxford. She had an on-again, off-again relationship with Peter Whimsey. Peter Whimsey noticed how wonderful she was. He oftentimes proposed marriage to her in these inopportune moments with his weird, flawed lifestyle. She, at the beginning of the stories, turned him down each time, but eventually was won over, and then they got married. They began in the novels to solve crime together, and it was evident through the stories that Harriet Vane, coming into Peter Whimsey's life, Her love transformed him into a confident man, a a man who was uh, healing from his insecurities and healing from his weaknesses, and they lived happily ever after solving crimes together, Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane. It's evident if you read this author, people have commented that Dorothy Sayers loved her famous character, Peter Whimsey, so much in her books that she wrote herself into the story. She noted that Peter Whimsey was a flawed character that needed love, needed help, and so she wrote herself in to save him. It's a powerful story, partially because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. God loved us so much, he wrote himself into the story to bring love to us. It was given to us through his son, demonstrated through his sacrifice, and expressed now today through us. Let's pray.